are in chapter 10 of Zechariah. And this chapter here, it's kind of a difficult chapter. Um, but at the same time, um, so it brings up something in this chapter that I've actually been wanting to preach about for a long time. That it's, uh, it's a really deep subject that uh, I'm only really going to scratch the surface on tonight. I'm probably going to preach some more on it in the future. But I figured tonight would be a good opportunity to cover a subject I haven't really preached on before that uh, hopefully will help you understand some things in the Scriptures. But before we start going through chapter 10, it's always important that we remember what we saw in the last chapter. Because remember, whenever you're reading a chapter in the Bible, you know, it's not always just a whole brand new subject. You know, we need to remember what we read in the previous chapters. And a lot of bad doctrine that people get or a bad interpretation of the Scriptures is because they just go and they zero in on the one passage and they ignore what was before it. They ignore uh, you know, how that passage was set up. And you can't do that. If you do that, you're going to make some mistakes. And in the previous chapter, in verse 16, it says, And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of His people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown, lifted up as an ensign upon His, head, upon his land. For how great is His goodness and how great is His beauty, corn shall make the young men cheerful and new wine the mates. And so, if you remember last week, we talked about how this here was all stuff that was supposed to happen when during after Jesus' triumphal entry. Verse 9 of chapter 9 prophesies the triumphal entry of Christ. We see Him winning battles, defeating enemies, yet we don't see any of that in the New Testament. Why is that? Because when Jesus went through the temple, they were an enemy to Jesus. And the truth is, you know, people always say, you know, you're, you're saying God broke His promise to Israel. It's like, well, that's because they want to pick and choose the promises. Truth is, if Jesus would have kept His promise here, He would have had to have wiped out Israel when He showed up. But you know what? He didn't wipe Israel out, which He could have done and should have done under the Old Covenant. But you know what He did? He brought in a new and a better covenant. And instead, He died on the cross for them. So if you want to call that Him breaking His promise then you're just an idiot. That's not him breaking his promise. It's just you don't understand the Old and the New Covenant. That's all there is to it. So now when we get to chapter 10, he does change subjects here a little bit. And he's kind of speaking here right in the beginning, in the present. Pray for my voice tonight that it can get through this. But look what it says. It says, Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie, and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain, wherefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats for the Lord of hosts, hath visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as his goodly horse in the battle. So notice here, he starts out telling them, hey, ask the Lord for what you need. One thing we've seen throughout the book of Zechariah is God was wanting to do good things in Israel. God is wanting to restore. He was restoring them. He's wanting to build the temple and he's wanting to make these people, I mean, the admiration of the world. He's wanting them to ask him for things because he wants to bless them. And we've seen many examples of that throughout this. I mean, God's just telling them, just do these few things for me. Just don't be liars. Don't be thieves. You know, follow me, and I'm going to do all these wonderful things for you. And then he tells them, and so in verse 1, he's telling them to ask for these things. In verse 2, he says, the idols have spoken vanity. Hey, these idols aren't doing anything for you. These idols aren't accomplishing anything. I'm the one that can actually do something. Follow me. And notice what he says, too. He says, you know, the diviners have seen a line of told false dreams. You've all, been, you've all have a history of listening to the false prophets instead of the prophets that I've sent you. And you know what? While everything I have said has come to pass, for example, the 70 years of captivity, the restoration to the land, the rebuilding of the temple, everything they prophesied has not come to pass. So who are you going to listen to? So he's just proving that you know he is better to listen to. And then now in verse 3... He's bringing up again kind of why he had punished them. We saw a few chapters before how he wanted to make sure they had learned their lesson 
So he's recalling what they got in trouble for. And he said his anger was kindled against the shepherds. And I punished the goats. For the Lord of hosts hath visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as his goodly horse in the battle. What's this talking about? We'll turn over to Jeremiah chapter 23. Because what we're seeing. What we're seeing here in the book of Zechariah is we are seeing the fulfillment of many of of Jeremiah's prophecies. Jeremiah prophesied a lot of these things that were to come. And Jeremiah was also the one who told them why they were going into captivity. He was the one that called them out for the sins they were committing. He was the one that told them why they were going going into captivity. So now that we're in Zechariah, basically... It's Jeremiah's prophecies that are being fulfilled. And so a lot of the things that we're seeing that, that are mentioned from the past, I believe, are meant to kind of direct them to the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who did prophesy things right, unlike the diviners and things that have prophesied a lie to him. So look at what it says in Jeremiah 23.1. It says, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. A pastor and a shepherd are the exact same thing. No difference. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. One of the jobs that the pastors had back then, you know, the shepherds, those who were leading the people, they were supposed to point people to God. Kind of the same thing I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not supposed to be pointing people to me. I'm supposed to be pointing people to Christ. That's what, I, that's what I'm supposed to do, the good shepherd, all right, the chief shepherd. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And notice when it says you've not visited them. What does that mean? Does it mean show up at their house? Well, I guess you could say that if it's meaning you need to get on to them, all right? One of the things that a shepherd has to do sometimes is kind of get on to people. And, you know, we don't have the ability in the church to, like, administer punishments like they did back in those days, Okay. But at the same time, we can throw people out of the church, can't we? And sometimes you need to do that. You know what that's called? It's called visiting them. Okay? It's called, it's, we're dealing with them. That's what a pastor does. He says, And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whither I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth in his days. Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So, notice that right there, the branch is mentioned again. The branch is also mentioned in the book of Zechariah. The branch, of course, is Jesus Christ. And notice how he mentions how in his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. One thing that the dispensationalists conveniently like to forget is the difference between Judah and Israel. And there was a difference between Judah and Israel. Judah was that southern kingdom. Israel was the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes that had rebelled earlier and had been taken captive by the the Assyrians. Now, those ten northern tribes, that's what we're going to talk a little bit about tonight after we go a little farther in here, because one thing you need to understand about the Bible is there are many things in the Scriptures, there are what we would call dark sayings. There are things that are, I mean, hidden deep in the Scriptures where, you know, nobody was going to read that you know, you know, back in Jeremiah's day or Zechariah's day, and then no, I know exactly what this is talking about for the future. Okay, but it's something that we can go back and look on and say, you know what, I see that. But you know, there's other things too, though, that if it weren't for the writers of the New Testament telling us this was the fulfillment of that passage, we probably wouldn't have seen it either, because it is, it's in there and it's in there deep. Now, let me tell you, you need to be careful forming your doctrine around something that you, I mean, that is really dark, you know, that is really deep, you know, that's not real clear. You need to be careful with that, okay? But there are some things that 
we can confirm, you know, for example, the allegory of Ishmael and Isaac. Okay? We can do that. We can make a big deal about that because of the fact that the Apostle Paul flat out told us these things are an allegory. Okay? So because of that, it's okay for us to go and do that. Now, I've seen people go and allegorize things from the Old Testament that was just like, you got to be kidding me. And I could, I could give you some examples tonight, but I, I don't have time to cover a lot of that. But, you know, we do, we do see things like that. So, you know, be careful. You don't want to just go searching for stuff so deep that it's probably not even there. You know, you don't want to be like the Ruckmanites that you go so deep in your doctrine you end up pulling it right out of hell. All right, you know, don't, don't, don't do that. But, uh, you know, it's okay, I think, too, as long as it fits, you know, Bible doctrine. We're going we're to look pretty deep at something here tonight that I think is just, it's undeniable what the Lord's trying to show us in there. Showing once again that he always had a specific plan. That he always had a plan to go to the Gentiles. And it, it is, it's, in, it's all over the Old Testament. Some places I think it's real clear. Some places in there deep. And I've got a New Testament verse too to, that shows me that that is the case too. I'm not just this isn't just something I figured out. No, this is something the New Testament tells us. All right. So, anyway, let's go ahead and keep going through this. So, notice, though, how he mentioned in Jeremiah, Judah and Israel are both mentioned. This is something that's to come in the future. All right. So, now in verse 4 of Zechariah 10, it says, Out of him came forth the corner, and out of him the nail, and out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. And they shall be as mighty men which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. And they shall fight because the Lord is with them and the riders on horses shall be confounded. This is just showing again how God's going to defeat their enemies. So we need to remember that where we currently are is Zechariah is giving prophecies concerning things that will come to pass if they obey the Lord. But they didn't. So these, you know, a lot of these things we're seeing, we're not going to go try to figure out how they happened in history. Okay? They didn't happen. And we don't even necessarily need to figure out how they're going to happen in the new, te- you know, in the future, because of the fact that under the new covenant, some things are a little different when it comes to Bible prophecy. So we don't need to. We're not going. I'm not going to go through chapter 10, and you know, turn myself into a pretzel trying to make everything fit with, you know, what the New Testament teaches on end times. I think uh, there's there's no reason for that. But look at verse six. And you know, and make sure make sure you have Zechariah six fifteen marked. That's a disclaimer verse in that book. Make sure you have that underlined because any time in one of these days you're going to be faced with some ructard or some dispensationalist that is they're going to pull something out of Zechariah and they're going to claim some future event that is not going to happen and they're going to tell you you're denying the Bible and you need to throw Zechariah six fifteen in their face. Okay? You have to do that. I would encourage you to find those disclaimer verses in all the Old Testament prophecy books because, uh, you know, they're they're very helpful when you're having those discussions. Look at verse 7. Verse 6. It says, And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. And I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am the Lord their God and will hear them. Notice how he mentions Judah, and more specifically, he mentions the house of Joseph here. Okay, why is that significant? Well, once again, this is a reference to the northern and southern kingdoms being restored. He said, I'm going to make it as though you weren't even cast off. Okay, now why did he say Joseph? Because typically, when you look at the 12 tribes of Israel, you don't see the tribe of Joseph necessarily mentioned. You see the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim that are mentioned. Okay? And we're going to and Manasseh and Ephraim, they were both the sons of Joseph. Sometimes it's, the Bible refers to the tribe of Joseph, but if it does, it's referring to Ephraim and Manasseh. But most of the time it just mentions Ephraim and Manasseh, and, and not necessarily Joseph. But he mentions Joseph here. In verse 7 it says, And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and, thine, and their heart shall rejoice as through wine. Yea, and their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. Okay? Now, it mentions, it, so it specifically now mentions Ephraim. 
He's going to be like the mighty man. Now, why is it significant that he's bringing up Ephraim? Now, why, why did it matter in that day? Now, the reason that it mattered in that day is because often when it would refer to the northern kingdom, or it would refer to Ephraim, because they were kind of the capital kingdom. Now, was Ephraim the only you know, tribe in that kingdom? No. But let me ask you this. In the southern kingdom, it usually mentions Judah. Was Judah the only tribe in the southern kingdom? No, they also had the Levites, and you know what else? They actually had the Benjamites, too. But because they were the main one, it often just says Judah. Often when it refers to the northern kingdom, it just says Ephraim, because they were kind of the main tribe in that northern kingdom. But the tribe of that northern kingdom, they were very wicked. They went to captivity years before the southern kingdom. But here he is talking about how they're going to be like a mighty man. The tribe, the, the northern kingdoms were, I mean, they were a mess during this time. By the time Jesus came along, they were so intermingled with the Gentiles, they were sometimes referred to as Gentiles, but they were often just referred to as Samaritans. Okay? Because Samaria, that was the capital city of the northern kingdom, and it was so infested with Gentiles in the minds of the Jews who were more purebred, you could say, in the southern kingdom, they did. They hated them. They, they despised them. And so, but understand that we have a prophecy here showing how that northern kingdom, it's going to be like they were never cast off. And so it says in verse 8, it says, And I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. <clears throat> I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon. And place shall not be found for them. So notice how he mentions he's going to gather them out of Assyria. It was the Assyrians that originally had taken them captive. So, and verse 11 says, And he shall pass through the sea with affliction and shall smite the waves in the sea and all the deeps of the river shall dry up, and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. And I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in His name, saith the Lord. So what's interesting about this is when the branch came, He promised that He was going to restore Ephraim. That's what we just saw here. He said, I'm going to make them as though they've never even been cast off. Talking about Ephraim. Talking about the northern kingdom, yet when Jesus came, who was it that the Jews hated probably more than anybody? They hated the Samaritans, who were of, who were Ephraim. That, that's who they were. Now, they probably didn't consider them as Ephraim anymore. They probably considered Ephraim as just being gone because of the fact that his bloodline was contaminated. But at the same time, it should not have been a surprise to them it shouldn't have been a surprise to the disciples when Jesus was sitting with the woman at the well. That shouldn't have been a surprise to them. But they had a problem with it, didn't they? Why? Because they were like the rest of the Jews. It was just one of those things they didn't see coming. They, they ignored it. You know, they, they held on to the prophecies they liked, and they ignored the ones that they didn't like. And they probably didn't like this one about Ephraim being restored. Because there was a lot of bad blood because of hundreds of years of them having separate kingdoms. Often they had wars with each other. And then eventually... They got taken captive. They were all intermingled. And so they, they didn't like him. But it was prophesied in the Old Testament that God was going to restore Ephraim. That he was going to bring them back. So what is significant about Ephraim? And this is what I've been wanting to preach about for a while. What's the big deal about Ephraim? What should we see when we are studying the Bible? Because I do believe there are some things, there are some deep things that we can see with Ephraim that are related to us as Gentile believers. Okay? What is that? Well, first off, remember the younger brother principle. I've talked a lot about this before. Okay? Cain and Abel. Cain's older, Abel's younger. Who is righteous? Cain or Abel? Abel. Okay? We have Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael the older, Isaac younger. Who was the child of promise? Isaac. Okay, we have Jacob or Esau and Jacob. Esau is older. Who is the chosen one there? It was Jacob. We have uh, with Jacob's children. Okay, 
Now, he had 12 sons, right? But, let me ask you, who received the right of the firstborn with Jacob's children? Anybody know? Joseph? No. Actually, Judah did from his father. Okay, But, who was the loved, who was the favored one? It was Joseph, right? Now, think about this. Okay, you know, Judah was number four, but Reuben went and he laid with his father's concubine. And then Simeon and Levi went and wiped out that city. And so because of that, they kind of lost it. And then it ended up going to Judah. You know, he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor, I forgot all of it, until Shiloh come. And the thing is, Jesus did come through the line of Judah, didn't he? Okay? But who was the loved child? It was the child from the wife that he loved, the child of his old age. It was Joseph, the younger brother. Now, he did have one brother younger, Benjamin. And one thing you're going to need to understand about types, they're not always perfect, okay? But there is definitely a story to tell. But here's where the story really is. It's not necessarily between Judah and Joseph, but it actually goes to the next generation with Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, turn over to Genesis chapter 48. Now, who is older, Ephraim or Manasseh? Manasseh was older, all right? Okay, but let's look at Genesis 48, verse 17. It says, When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head onto Manasseh's head. This is when Jacob, he's blessing all of his sons, but you know what he did different with Joseph's sons that he didn't do with his other grandsons? He did a special blessing for Joseph's children. Okay? And, he, and so Joseph, he brings his two boys. He's got Manasseh in his left hand. He's got Ephraim in his right hand, bringing them to his father. So his father will lay his right hand on Manasseh, the elder, and his left hand on Ephraim, the younger. But Jacob switched his hands. Jacob put the right hand on Ephraim, and he put the left hand on Manasseh. Now, do you think the Bible's just putting that in there just because it's, you know, for fun? No, there's something to that. There's a reason that the Bible is telling us this. And so look what it says in verse 19. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son. I know it. He should become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying... In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Okay? So, in Jesus' day, you know, who was Ephraim? Okay? It was basically the Samaritans, or you could even say the Gentiles that were you know, scattered all over in that northern kingdom. Okay, and look, turn over to Luke chapter 15 because we have another story. And, I, and I've preached on this before, but it, it's, it's worth repeating. We've got another story about two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother. This is a, this is a parable, probably one of the most popular parables. But it is probably the, I mean, nobody, hardly, throughout all the years I've been alive, has ever actually preached what this parable is about. And that's the parable of the prodigal son. It's got two brothers, once again. But look what it says in verse 1. Okay, let's get context of the parable of the prodigal son. Verse 1, it says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Who's coming? The publicans and sinners. Okay, sinners are often refer or is often another term they would use for Gentiles. Remember what Paul said: "We who are not sinners, after the Gen- like the Gentiles, after the Gentiles." Okay, you've got these people who aren't keeping the law. These people who aren't, you know, of Judah anyway. They're all coming to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, "This man receive sinners and eateth with them." Once again, they shouldn't have been surprised by this because it was prophesied in Zechariah, but they're getting all bent out of shape about it. And so here they've got a problem 
with Jesus Christ receiving these sinners. And so what does Jesus do? He goes into the parable of the prodigal son, and you know it frontward and backward. And you have heard preachers your entire life debating, is this about salvation or is this about a backslider? And that's what everybody wants to preach on. And you know what? You can, it's okay to take principles from stories like that. Note these preachers have not been wrong in preaching about the return, you know, the backslider returning. Okay? But that is not why Jesus told that parable. Jesus told that parable because the Jews, the older brother, they had a problem with the Gentiles, the Samaritans, the younger brother coming back to the father. That's what they had a problem with. They did not want to share in the inheritance with the younger brother. And so because of that, they did. They got bent out of shape and ultimately they rejected the Messiah. Ultimately, they tried to seize on the inheritance. And because of that, the kingdom ended up getting taken from them. Because of that, when Christ returns, he's going to destroy those wicked men. Okay? Okay. But I don't think I need to go through the whole parable of the prodigal son. I think you all know it. I've preached on it before. But I do believe that this prodigal son, you could say, he represents the Gentiles. I believe Ephraim represents the Gentiles. And uh, turn over to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13. Look what it says here. It says, In leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zebulun and Nephilim, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Nephilim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region in shadow of death, light is sprung up. So it was prophesied in Isaiah. This is in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, that... There was going to be a light that was going to shine. And it mentions in Isaiah, it refers to it as Galilee of the nations. Okay? Why is that significant? Once again, the, that land was full of Gentiles. And who was it that received the preaching better? Was it the Jews or the Gentiles? It was the Gentiles that were listening to the preaching. It was the Gentiles that were getting saved mainly. And who was it that was throwing a big fit about it the whole time? It was the Jews. It was the older brother who refused to make Mary with the father and, the, and that prodigal son returning. But at the same time, this shouldn't have been a surprise to him because it was prophesied that they were going to be restored. God told him that he was going to make them as though they had never been cast off. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean he's going to make them as though they've never been cast off? Well, it's because he's going to give them, those Jews back all of their land that he promised them. No, maybe it has something to do with the fact that one of these days he's going to return. He's going to change our vile body. Maybe it's because of the fact that right now, even though we're still sinful in the flesh, he's cleansed us with his own blood. He's made us sons. And he's given us eternal life. It's as though, listen, he's given us eternal life. Eternity, that's not just forever in one direction, is it? It's forever in both directions, right? Future and past. So if we have eternal life, doesn't make us like we've always been his children? It makes it as though we have not been cast off. So think, you know, think about that. So one thing that we're seeing here, I, I believe Zechariah is alluding to a little bit. I think it is a prophetic thing showing the return of the Gentiles. And that is something that when you look in the Old Testament... Not everywhere. Not every time you see Ephraim mentioned in the Old Testament are you going to see things involving the Gentiles. But there are many examples where you will. For example, especially in the book of Hosea. If you go through the book of Hosea, that is a prophecy towards that northern kingdom. And it talks a lot about it. And there's quotes in, uh, in the book of Romans from Hosea. Specifically, I mean, showing that it is talking to us. That it is referring to us. And I don't even have time to go into all that. But let me show you some things, too. Just showing that I'm not just pulling this out of the Bible because I just need something, right? Because let me tell you something. The dispensationalists do that all the time where they can't find any Bible to fit their theology. So they'll find a picture from the Bible. For example, proof of the pre-trib rapture. You have 
the flood represents the tribulation. Notice, the rain didn't start until the door was closed. Notice, when the rains came, the ark was above the flood, on top of the water, like the church, we're all going to be up in heaven, and then the ark landed again after the water went down, we're coming back down after tribulation. Okay, now, you know, that makes a cool, pretty picture and everything. However, you know, that doesn't fit what the Bible teaches on end times. But when you don't have, you know, clear scripture to back up your teaching, often people will go to that. And you got to be careful. And just to show you that I'm, I'm not just, you know, pulling this out just because I need to prove that the gospel. Even dispensationalists agree that there's a lot of prophecy in the Bible about the gospel going to the Gentiles. I mean, they, they, even, they even teach that God shifted his attention from the Jews to the Gentiles. They just think he's going to go back to the Jews again. Well, if that's the case, there needs to be another chapter of the prodigal son story showing how, you know, eventually, you know, went back to the old, paying attention to the older brother again. But we don't, we don't see that. It's not there. But look, let's, let's, look, let's look at a few verses from the New Testament showing that this is something that was in the Old Testament, but it was something that was deep. It was something that they, didn't, that they did not understand. They, and listen, they did not understand this. They did not understand this in the Old Testament. In fact, they did not understand this even in the book of Acts until after Acts chapter 10, after the salvation of Cornelius. They didn't know what to think when a Gentile got filled with the Holy Ghost. Remember, then, then in chapter 11, they all come together and they're like, this is what was prophesied. All of a sudden now, the scriptures are open to them. And they're like, this is actually what the Bible prophesied. They didn't, they didn't believe it until they actually saw it for themselves. And, you know, I think, that, I think it's very likely, it's very possible in the millennial kingdom, we're going to go back and we're going to see all kinds of stuff in the Bible that we missed. You know, after the fact. You say, well, why, why doesn't God make it clear? Well, sometimes God does things like that, I think, just to show off a little bit. Just to show how, listen, I always had a plan. There's some things that are not for us to know yet. Okay? There are some things for us not to know yet, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't already know what those things are going to be. God's not making this thing up as he goes. God's always known what was going to be from the beginning, but not everything has been for us to know from the beginning. So God often put things in his word, hidden deeply, so that one day we would all be able to go back and look at that and see, wow, he knows what he's doing. Maybe we ought to just trust him on these things and not be like the Jews did. But look what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 9. It says, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvations the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Now, I believe Peter here, he's talking to Gentiles here. And he's telling them, listen, the, prophet, the prophets, they prophesied of this, of this grace that would come unto you. But they didn't understand it. Listen, they did not understand how a people who were not seeking after God, a people who were not seeking after righteousness, would get righteousness. They didn't understand that. You know, it makes sense that the people, the people that would go to heaven would be the ones that are trying to go to heaven, right? The good people, right? I mean, doesn't that kind of make sense to the carnal mind? But the truth is, we end up learning in the New Testament that, you know, our righteousness, it's just, it's too rotten. But, and that was even spelled out in the Old Testament when they said all our righteousness are filthy rags. That's Old Testament. Okay, but for some reason they still missed that too. It went over their head. But it was just laying out clear, and it was proven too when Jesus died and he paid for all of our sins on the cross. And he just flat out, he flat out shows that we were, that we were dependent on a Savior. But the thing is, this stumped them. These people, they're not offering sacrifices for their sins. They're not even trying to live righteous lives. Here we are, we're doing the work, we're following God's laws, we're doing the sacrifices, we're keeping the feasts, we're doing all these things that commanded. These people out there, they're just a bunch of heathen, they're living like the devil, they're not doing anything. How in the world are these people ever going to get saved? Well, you know what? They did. They did get saved. And you know, the Jews didn't. And what does it teach? The Gentiles which sought not after righteousness, 
have attained to righteousness. But the circumcision of the Jews, who were seeking after righteousness, did not attain it. Why? The Bible says because they sought it not by faith. But it was the Gentiles that had faith. It was the centurion that came to Jesus that Jesus said, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. It was with the Gentile that he kept finding great faith. It was with that woman, that Gentile woman who came to Jesus asking that he would, you know, asking for healing. And you know, he basically called her a dog. And she said, man, even the dogs eat the crumbs. What did she, she recognized her dependence on Christ and her need for him. And she just, for some reason, believed that if she just asked him, he would do what she wanted. And you know what? He did. Why? Because of her great faith. The Gentiles had that faith where the Jews didn't. And Satan, we understand that now because we have so many more scriptures on faith. But this is something they did not understand in the Old Testament. The salvation that was going to come to the Gentiles. Yet Jesus always knew it was coming. And we can see that. Through this principle of the younger brother. We see it with Ephraim. It was Ephraim that rebelled first. It was Ephraim that went into captivity first. That northern kingdom was way more wicked than the southern kingdom. But you know what? They made a comeback. Why? They, they returned to the Father. And, th- and thank God for that. That's who we are. You know, and it's funny because Spencer Smith, he wants to, you know, he once was making this video back when he was trying to get famous going after Pastor Anderson. He ended up finding fame going after Lauren Daigle. But he failed going after him because everybody kept debunking him. He would make a video trying to, and he would just look like an idiot every time. But one video, and he took this one down fast because he looked so stupid, but I saved it. But I, I got, he, was, he was trying to defend Schofield. Okay? And this was... He said, C.I. Schofield is not someone we look to. He just happens to be one of the early guys who put the idea that there was a difference between Israel and the church. He just put that in print. And that's all there is to the guy. Well, if that's all there is to the guy, then he's got nothing. Okay? And first of all, that's all there is to the guy. Preached, he taught a lot of other trash, a lot of other garbage. And Spencer Smith has always been a huge promoter of Schofield. Always. And he's backing off of it now because he's looked like an idiot from it. But he put the difference between Israel and the church. Now, what does that mean when they say there's a difference between Israel and the church? Okay. Now, look, there is a difference between Israel and the church if we're talking about Israel over there in the Middle East. Okay. And us. Yeah, there's a difference. But what do they mean when they say Israel and the church? What they're basically saying is there are two peoples of God. That's what they're saying. God's got Israel and God's got the church. You don't know that? You're not rightly divided. The Bible says Jews, Gentile, the church of God. You know, three people. Now, you know, just foolishness like that. But let's see what the Bible actually says. All right, turn over to Colossians chapter, uh, turn over to Colossians 1 and Ephesians. We're going to look at a few verses there. Colossians 1.12, notice what, we, and we're, we don't have time, I wish we could go through all of Colossians 1 and 2, we're not going to do that in, in all of Ephesians 1 and 2, but let's, let's just show a few highlights, okay? Look at verse 12, it says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Now let me ask you, we are, we have been made to be partakers of of the inheritance of the saints. Now, what does that mean? Okay, to partake of something, it means to share in something, doesn't it? Okay? And if we're sharing something, it means we're sharing it with someone, right? So we're, we have been made, the Gentiles, in Paul's day, very early in the church, he's saying we have been made to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. So that means these saints, uh, saints in light that he's referring to is something that has been around. Y'all understand that? Does that just make common sense? If I said that, hey, you've been made to be a partaker in something or with, with some group, okay, that means, you know, there's someone else out there, right? Now, this group that he's talking about is the Old Testament saints. Okay, the inheritance he's talking about is what they were promised. 
We are partakers of that. Y'all get that? Okay, we're, we're partakers of that inheritance. And people always want to talk about the inheritance for Israel and acting like it's for a bunch of Jews over the Middle East. No, we, if, if, if it belongs to them, it belongs to us too because we are partakers. But the truth is, they don't have the inheritance. Okay? But we are partakers of the inheritance of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the saints of the Old Testament. We're partakers of it. Verse 13 says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Okay? We've been translated in the kingdom of his dear son. You know, that's the gospel of the kingdom. But what do they want to say? Uh, you know, the kingdom, that, that's for the Jews. The gospel of the kingdom is for the Jews. Really? We've been, we're the ones who have been translated the kingdom of his son. Well, that's a different kingdom. Really? So he's got more than one kingdom? Yep. If you rightly divide, you've got the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's like, no. There's one kingdom, folks. There's one Lord. Okay? There's one people of God. And we have been translated into that. We have become a part of that kingdom. And so, yeah, there's an Old Testament kingdom. There's an Old Testament people of God. But we as New Testament believers, we as Gentiles, we have been made a partaker of that. We are of the same people. Look what it says in Ephesians. And this very fact is why there are some people who have good doctrine when it comes to Israel who they don't like the term replacement theology. Okay? Now, I think they shy away from it mostly because it has such a negative connotation to it. Just because of the fact that it has been successfully made to be this villainous, evil doctrine. Okay? But here's why I embrace the term replacement theology is because the reason we have been made, or we are able to be a part of Israel is because of the new covenant. Okay? And the new covenant replaced the old covenant. So that there were, and so to, you know, to deny that term. It's just foolish when the high priest was replaced, when the priesthood was replaced, when the covenant was replaced, when the promises were replaced. I mean, all these things were replaced, but yet we can't use the term replacement theology just because it's, people are, you know, they frown on that term. Well, you know what? The people who frown on that term, they're just idiots and heretics, most of them. And so just get over it. But you know what? Uh, you know, there are people who got a lot of stuff right that don't like that term. That's fine. I'm not going to beat them up for it. Okay, but I'm not going to run from. It. I'm not. I'm not going. But I'm not going to force people to use it if they don't want to. Look, it says in Ephesians 1:10. It says that in the dispensation, all there's that word dispensation that proves dispensationalism right there, just because we got the word dispensation. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. Well, you know, the kingdom of God, that's in heaven, but the kingdom of heaven, or yeah, because they say, uh, yeah, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, they say are different things. And they say the kingdom of God is the heavenly kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven is like the Jewish kingdom on earth. It's like, wouldn't the kingdom of heaven be? But once again, it's, this, it's the same kingdom. It's just a bunch of foolishness. But notice how it says that God's wanting to make them all both in one. And he's wanting all things to be in Christ. Yet, what are they teaching? What does Bill Grady have in his, in, the, in his book? They openly admit and they openly teach that the church is the bride of Christ and the Jews are the bride of God. Wait, I thought God wanted all things to be in one and them to be in Christ. On heaven and on earth. Isn't that what it says in Ephesians? In the, they should know this verse, seeing that it has the word dispensation in it. Since there's only four, that word's only in the Bible four times. And they, they've built a whole doc, crazy doctrine around it. You would think they would know, have this verse memorized, yet they all want to ignore the fact that God wanted all things to be together in Christ, both that are on earth and in heaven. How do they miss that? Blindness is what it is, because most of these people are not even saved. At least the ones that are promoting it, pushing it, writing books about it. There's a lot of preachers out there who are dispensational, who are saved. But that, the reason they're dispensational is because they're bullied by the political system and they have been told, 
you should be dispensational, and they want to be in the club. Okay, I'm dispensational. And when they get nervous about it, this is what they do. This is what Sam Gipps said to me. He said, do you believe in Old Testament and New Testament? I said, yeah. He said, well, then you believe dispensationalism. That's what they say all the time. And I've had, I've had many people give that same quote to me. They probably got it from Sam Gipp. Okay? And I, what I tell them is, well, if you believe... And somebody just did the other day on YouTube. They left a comment on there. Like, if you believe in the Old Testament New Testament, you believe in dispensationalism. I said, if you believe in Old Testament New Testament, you believe in replacement theology. The New Testament replaced the Old Testament. Bunch of foolishness. But look what it says in Ephesians 2, verse 11. It says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. If we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you know what that means? It means we're not anymore. We are not aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We we're at one time strangers from those things, but we're not anymore. We are not strangers from the covenants. Okay? It's not those things don't apply. I've been, you, know, in, you know, it would be hard. Okay? There are some freedoms that we still have in America that are a blessing, aren't they? And you know what? It would stink, and it would, it would be weird to not be a citizen of this country and not have all the same rights that come with it. Okay? And when I've been in other countries before, you know, I'm always kind of careful when I'm over there because of the fact that I'm a stranger over here. I don't necessarily have the same rights, and I don't even always know what their laws are over there. If there's a conflict between me and one of them, I'm probably going to be the bad guy. <clears throat> we had a situation where we were in Ireland where there was a guy we were going to throw out of our group. We were throwing him out of our group, and he wouldn't leave, and he was running his mouth. I wanted to physically remove him so bad. But I was like, I'm a stranger over here. I, I, I don't know what their rules are. And I didn't want to get arrested for assault in another country in case it was assault. Now, from what I've been told, if people come in our church, we can tell them to leave. And if they won't leave after a couple warnings, I've been told we can physically remove them. And I say, hey, amen. <laughs> you know, and when we'll do it. But over there, I don't know what their laws are. And I remember I'm just kinda, I was kind of in the guy's face while he's running his mouth. Just I, I, I wanted to lay hands on him so bad. But I'm like, I'm a stranger over here. I better not. And he finally walked off running his mouth like a little punk. But, uh, you know, it stinks being that stranger. You know, and according to the Bible, we used to be strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. We used to be strangers from the covenants. In other words, when we would hear about those promises, there was a time when as Gentiles we would say, oh, that's not for us. That's not about us. Kind of like Sam Gibbs trying to still say about it today. You know, every time you see a rapture, you think it's for you. You know, that's for the Jews. You know, you, some of you in here, you think Jesus is your Messiah. He's not your Messiah. That was for the Jews. You know, I used to be a stranger from that, but I'm not anymore. So you know what? He is my Messiah. Those are my raptures. Those, are, those, those do belong to me because I am a fellow citizen. So, but now in Christ Jesus... Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. What makes you think you're a Jew? The blood of Christ. What makes you think you're going to get the promises? The blood of Christ. What makes you think you're a partaker of the promises? The blood of Christ. That's what makes me part of it. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall partition between us and having abolished in his flesh. Abolish what? Abol Isn't that a good question? What did he abolish in his flesh? It was all those carnal ordinances were against us. It was all those things. It was all those laws that were for the Jews and that weren't for us. And honestly, too, and, and in reality, too, the law was against the Jews, too, because they couldn't keep it. So they ought to be thankful for this. Because many of those ordinances, they broke. But yet they can still be a part of it. They can still, Jews can still receive the promises, but only if they go through the blood of Christ. And, be, and by the blood of Christ, because he has abolished those things, even the law of commandments in himself, 
of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And let me just close with, and you know, I'm ashamed to say it. I've heard the song several times, and I kind of like the song. It was, it was a good song. Until one day, I was just like, this song's trash. And it's a song I can go in. It's a newer song written, and the song talks about, you know, this guy, he's like waiting to go into heaven, and he sees this company of prophets going in. He's like, I can't go in with them. But then he sees another group of martyrs, you know, and all these, all, uh, yeah, the martyrs on there and stuff. And he's like, man, I, I can't go in with them. But then all of a sudden he sees this massive group, this massive throng of people led by the thief on the cross who started the new dispensation. He sees, he sees all these, and he's like, you know, who are these? And he's like, these are the sinners saved by grace. And he's like, I can go in with these. And everybody gets excited. We get excited because, you know, that is how we get into heaven, by grace. Okay? But everybody's getting in that same way. There's not going to be three different groups of people going into heaven. There's going to be one group, all of them, going to be saying, I can go in because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone who's going to heaven got in by the blood of Christ, and the rucktards are out there openly, admittingly teaching that the Old Testament saints got into heaven through faith plus works. Then the, uh, it basically admitting they did not get in on the blood of Christ, but we see that Christ wanted God wanted to make both one by the blood of Christ. Old Testament saints got into heaven by the blood of Christ. And we get into heaven by the blood of Christ. And so this was something that God always had planned. It was always God's plan to offer salvation to the whole world. That was always his plan. And proof of that is in that younger brother principle we see and we see that also with many of the things concerning Ephraim Ephraim represents the Gentiles in the Bible and we see in Zechariah 10 he prophesied they were going to be restored they were going to be like they were never cast off and I believe we are recipients of that prophecy right there and thank God for it so with that let's pray dear Lord we thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to learn from these things, Lord. Help us to dig deep, Lord. Help us not to go looking for stuff like this, Lord, just to fit our doctrine, but let it, uh, Lord, let us just use it to support what's clearly taught in the Bible. And, Lord, this principle of the Gentiles being made fellow heirs, it's, it's just it's spelled out. There's no denying it. And I pray you'll help us to uh, proclaim this truth and help us to put us to be able to help make a difference in putting a stop this teaching about two different people of God, Lord. I believe that dispensationalism and the support of Israel is doing more to send Jews to hell than literally anything else. And I pray you'll help us make a difference in that area. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.